0: Hi everybody and welcome. This is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development with our Emergency Response and Risk Management podcast. I'm delighted to have Forrest Landing with us here right now, who is the Earthquake Response Liaison for FEMA in Region 9. Welcome, Forrest.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: You better tell us um, how gigantic Region 9 is, because that's a huge responsibility
1: yeah so region nine so so the u.s is divided into 10 different regions under fema and um i'm working with region nine which consists of the states of california nevada arizona hawaii and then the u.s territories of american samoa guam and the commonwealth of the northern marianas islands which is out by the philippines
0: well that's a that's it spans a area.
1: yeah it spans uh across the Dateline, so there's a lot of logistical things managing an area that wide um, it, and the numerous uh, time zones. So trying to do a conference call with everybody from Guam all the way to uh, Nevada is, is is challenging sometimes.
0: I can imagine. Tell us about your role, responsibilities, the things you look after.
1: So what what is most of FEMA deals with flooding and hurricanes um, and typhoons. Generally, because that's the most common and wildfires, but mostly flooding and hurricanes, because that's the most uh, common or frequent disaster that happens throughout the US and since it's a federal agency. They kind of focus on the hazards that are most common to the rest of the country. So in region nine, our biggest threat is an major earthquake. And so they don't have that. They didn't have that in house um, expertise. And so what I do is I serve as a senior Leadership uh, advisor. And so I I advise leadership on the risks, on what type of um, uh, results from a disaster, from a major earthquake, what um, basically, and liaison with the USGS, which is the United States Geological Survey. So I kind of interpret all of the scientific information, translate that for emergency managers and leadership. And so I kind of serve as that point of contact from FEMA to all other agencies dealing with the technical natures of earthquakes and volcanoes, actually.
0: So are you involved in a response like, do you go out on site into the locations?
1: I do. Um, so we haven't had a major earthquake in um, in the U.S. or Region 9 recently. We had a small, well, we say a small earthquake because it didn't have that much of an effect, but it was a 7.1 out in Ridgecrest, California. So because it was in the middle of the desert, it didn't actually have that much of a in effect it it had a small town that was out in the deserts that mostly was built in the 1980s so there's a lot of timber frame houses and so it it, everything kind of fared well pretty well there wasn't much damage but they didn't leadership didn't know that they see an earthquake that happens 7.1 and 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 they want to know what is the probability of uh of damage casualties um, and any type of knock-on effects. And so they don't have that information from the media coming in. So I kind of tell them knowing the geological features of that area, the soil conditions, the type of um, looking at the, the, the shake maps and then try to interpret based on my experiences around the world of different earthquakes on what they could likely expect in the first few hours since the earthquake. That is needed at the senior leadership is for, to provide funding and to provide human um, assets for um, for responding to it.
0: And so when you go out on site, and you, you were saying before we started recording that sometimes you travel around the world, tell us about some of those um, locations you've been to and experiences you've had. So prior to FEMA,
1: I've been with FEMA actually almost exactly three years now, but prior to that, I used to work for the USAID, which is the United States Agency for International Development on some of their projects, and most recently, um, it was in Latin America in Costa Rica and Colombia. Prior to that, I was actually in New Zealand um, working for Oricon, which is an engineering company based in Christchurch, and that was for the Christchurch rebuild. I and my wife relocated down there shortly after the uh, 2011 February earthquake and was there for about four years uh, assessing damage. Um, coming up with uh, retrofit solutions, dealing with ground differential settlement, how to relevel buildings, and um, and also designing new uh, new buildings to replace the 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 ones that were completely totaled. And, and prior to that, I was working for the United Nations Office for Project Services in Banda Aceh. Actually, I'm skipping too far back. Before that, I was in Afghanistan, with also with USAID. Uh, Dealing with a risk assessment project for the um, all the schools that were being built um, since 2002 that were not designed to uh, international standards, and seeing what type of risk those schools and hospitals had in a in a moderate earthquake. Then before that, it was uh, the United Nations office for office for project services, which was based in Bana Aceh, and that's where I was working on the reconstruction recovery after the. Wow, well, it's been a while, 2004, December uh, 26, uh, tsunami and earthquake.
0: Yeah, and the effects are still being dealt with there to this day in 2020. Uh, it's quite a quite a powerful impact and a long, long-lasting impact. I do want to say thank you very much for relocating your family and coming to New Zealand and helping us, Oma Kiwi, to, um, to rebuild after the earthquake. That's a significant thing that you did for us.
1: Well, yeah, it was it was probably one of the highlights of uh, one of the coolest locations to to uh, to live and work. Um, being uh, big on the outdoors, there, there was a lot uh, that was offered in in the South Island for like tramping and all that. So it was definitely a pleasure.
0: I think it'd be really interesting for students who <clears throat> maybe come from different industries, but they've been studying emergency response or disaster management or response mitigation. Is there a particular model or framework that you use when you look at how do we respond to an earthquake? Is there a model or a theory or a framework, a process that you help people work through?
1: Well, responding is more of understanding the vulnerabilities of a city. And you have to look at it. A, a, I guess a, a few layers <clears throat> beyond just the obvious. So you have your your building stock. Your the types of buildings that are constructed there. The the design if they were designed, what code were they designed to? And then the construction quality were. It, did construction actually follow through on the design or did they just do their own thing which happens in a lot of parts of the world so there's that aspect and then there's also the infrastructure aspect are your water lines going to be vulnerable to um being a uh, severed just like in christchurch and the sewage lines if if and we we're talking we we're talking globally maybe maybe there's not even water lines and sewage lines uh, like in fonda Aceh. So we need to know if those were to be non-functioning, then what is that gonna happen for lifelines? So what's that gonna, what are we gonna to have to do to move in water, food? Um, how are we gonna get transporta- um, the transportation lines? How are we gonna get the supplies there? Are the highways gonna be blocked by landslides, by uh, vulnerable bridges? It's knowing those risks and coming up with a plan B if that area, and I do this for the San Francisco Bay Area, if one major artery, transportation artery is uh, blocked, what is the alternate? What is plan B and plan C for getting supplies to different locations depending on what areas were heavily affected?
0: And so when you come into a, an environment like that, um, particularly I know with Christchurch, there were things like liquefaction, which had to be dealt with immediately um, at the supplying water what are some of the longer-term effects and like the non-health-related impacts that cities or countries have to deal with?
1: Well, I think I'm going to draw from two experiences, both Christchurch, and I'm sure there's a lot of students who are probably from Christchurch and personally have felt this stuff, and then also Banda Aceh since I just recently went there. So I know Christchurch, it was the uh, the economy. Uh, the city ended up becoming like a donut city. So I had that CBD area that was just a no-go zone. There, um, even the company I worked for, we relocated to the outskirts of this, of, of Christchurch, and then people started getting situated there. And so there was this whole long term, like it took a, I mean it took a long time, and and obviously they're still recovering from it. Um, and it, so you have this lasting effect of how the city functions, like how where the community— Go where people were commuting to, where where people are going to shop, where people are going to want to live. People are not going to want to live in other suburbs. Like when I first went there, I actually I lived in Suburner. I know that was one of the hardest hit areas, but that's where there were available uh, rental houses that you know that were that we could get. So, but a lot of the locals didn't want to live there. So it, it, things have that lasting effect um, on just the way the city functions. I know in Banda Aceh, going back 15 years later, it. You're, getting, you're going back to the schools and talking to the headmasters or principals. All those kids in the schools were born after it. So they have no, there's no living memory for the students on that event, but the teachers have it, and, they, and it's very still traumatic to them. A lot of them have, have lost their own kids or have lost their students, and everyone's lost a family member in that, in that um, event. And there is the, la- the last, I guess, the, the long-term effects on there is just the social well-being. People moved away because they couldn't handle the memories of that event so i was surprised like how many of the locals that survived the uh, tsunami and earthquake left the city and permanently moved away there's the city has grown a lot but they're all from outsiders and it was actually hard to find a homeowner that uh, we were conducting interviews for uh, a lot of the beneficiary families that received houses that were constructed after the tsunami but very few of them were actual the ones that lived on that plot of land prior to the tsunami. Everyone else has moved them from either out of town or from uh, Java or the parts of Indonesia. And so I think that trauma has is gonna be for permanently on those the peoples uh, who experienced it. So I think that still is very evident there and I don't think that's going anywhere anytime
0: soon. I guess that would have a cultural impact, an impact on people bringing their different beliefs or perspectives in, and it would have quite a change on the way that the community functions. And
1: it you know, is, and and I think I think one of the one of the aspects is uh, I was talking about like, do asking the principals, do they feel more prepared now, given that they have gone through this and they know what the effects are, and it's it's a mixed mixed answer you get sometimes they say they do they know exactly what to do is run for high ground they know the effects of the earthquakes and the type of buildings but those are the few people that remained in the city all these new people coming in don't have that that particular memory so they're not going to know or have that personal connection and know exactly what to do after the uh, an earthquake should they head for a higher ground so i think that um that that does make it a problem it makes it a problem for the city to be able to react there was an earthquake a significant earthquake I don't remember the magnitude It was probably I think it was like in a seven that hit Banda Aceh not long ago a few years ago and that was kind of like a good test because now they have these vertical evacuation structures that um is designed for the community around to evacuate to to get above a certain elevation for, for just in case of a tsunami wave comes in and um Everyone we've we interviewed said it was just a big failure. It, they thought it was a, it, the, no one reacted properly. If you're, if you're here, the sirens, you're supposed to go to an evacuation center. You're not supposed to go to the school and pick up your kids because the teacher is supposed to take them to evacuate because you're, you don't have that type of time. And so um, people didn't do that. People went and picked up their kids and, you know, obviously for obvious reasons, they're going to want to do that. But that, and then there's people who got in their cars, you're supposed to walk to the evacuation structures, not not actually get in their cars and get out. So people got in the cars, caused gridlock traffic, people were not going anywhere. Some of the evacuation structures were actually still locked because they actually locked them to keep, um, I don't know, people from coming in and messing with it or something. But anyways, they weren't locked yet. And that's a whole other issue, should they even be locked? But so there was a lot of issues a given that they thought there could easily be an, a tsunami coming in. And so everyone was pretty disappointed at how the city reacted. And I think a lot of it's due to new people coming in and not understanding and ha- having that personal connection to that event.
0: And often an event will happen and it, and it shakes people up and scars them for that period of time. But the memory is quite short when we get back to day to day. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'd like It's really hear- amazing. I you know it's really amazing how short-term humans have a very short-term memory, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know, it, it, you got to you got to take the opportunity to do a lot of mitigation projects in those few years after a major earthquake. Otherwise, people are not—they're going to have other priorities. It happens here in the U.S. too, all the time. <laughs>
0: Forrest, I'd love for you to tell us about the technological changes that you see happening with your ability to predict and measure and and influence and liaise with government departments. Because I know technology is disrupting every industry these days. What sort of, what are some of the new technologies that we can be aware of that you're using or seeing coming up?
1: Well, just recently, uh, california in conjunction with the united states geological survey uh rolled out an earthquake early warning system now uh, mexico city had an earthquake i'm trying to remember i think it was like two two years ago um it was it was uh it's fairly big it did cause a number of buildings to collapse so basically i went down there with a, a few others to investigate their early early warning system which they've had since the 90s and um their system is i think it's everyone takes it seriously it's great in the fact that every street light has a, a siren on it and everyone knows that siren and in fact when you have false alarms it's traumatizing because people take that siren to heart and so when the earthquake happened those sirens went off people now they they practice evacuating buildings for an earthquake rather than um uh, dropping cover but um but that's what they they do they that's all they, it's all memory muscle memory and they do that all the time and so because um, we were looking at rolling out an earthquake early warning system here in California, and it was publicly roll, rolled out late last year, um, except the, the difference here is that we don't have the sirens on every street light um, in the state. So what they decided to do, and when I say they, I mean um, the state of California in conjunction with the USGS is to use your mobile phone. And um, that, so your mobile phone, it may or may have the siren depending if you have reception. If you've turned your, um, maybe you didn't, you didn't, maybe you turned off your alerts. Like I sometimes do that because I don't want to be interrupted all the time. So there's a lot of aspects. Like yeah, your mobile phone may work, um, but it just it depends on a number of factors that technical factors that uh, may not get you the message. And there's another also problem is that because your mobile phone is using data, like for um through the internet. You can't get a message out to, there's, a, there's almost 40 million people in California, just the state, and you can't get a message out, not that you're going to need a message to the entire state, but even a metropolitan area, say, for example, LA, 10 million people, you're not going to be able to get a message out to everybody. There's not enough bandwidth to simultaneously send out a message, and you have to have the seconds there cannot be any delay. So there's already going to be an inherent two to three second delay from the seismographs going off, triangulating an earthquake, predicting where it's going to be, who should be notified. And it's the same kind of similar system to what Mexico City uses. But in this case, now we have an additional lag is because we're not using radio waves to turn on sirens like they do in Mexico City. Now it's going through the cell service companies and they are gonna to have to send it out in batches to maybe a couple hundred thousand people at a time. So you could, the best case scenario, get an alert maybe in four or five seconds. Worst case scenario, you can get it in 25 seconds. And we all know, depending on where the epicenter is, mm-hmm. that you might get it after the earthquake. So yeah. there's that challenge. And it's underst- getting the public to educate it, to understand that is an inherent flaw of the system and that they, you know you may get the message in time you may not you should not depend on that message and what type of information should we communicate was another aspect to to the public should we tell them the magnitude should we tell them um what type of intensity shaking you can get your phone and we felt as part of the committee for the communication and outreach is that that's too much information people end up being their own uh seismologists, even though they are not, they don't have that background. They think, oh, well, it's a magnitude so-and-so. We, I don't have to duck and cover. I don't have to or, or do whatever, not knowing there's a lot of other factors at play. So we felt that limit that information. Just tell them that there's an earthquake coming. Don't tell them when and don't say how big because people will start interpreting that in different ways and that actually delays reaction. And so that is one um, technology that just rolled out last year. Another one that I'm looking at working with um actually we're working with uh, caltech and um and nasa jpl is that there's a remote damage assessment one of the biggest problems that we have for a major earthquake is understanding where the concentrations of damage is in a major metropolitan area like the san francisco bay area or the la you know we're talking about an area just a vast area of just cons- constant urban area and when you have a major earthquake you want to know where in that metropolitan area you need to provide urban search and rescue to provide medical care um, or even just get a magnitude of how much uh, resources do we need so we need an ability to be able to assess how much damage and where it's located so the technology that they're looking at at nasa jpl and caltech is using um, frequencies from satellites and depending on how the the frequency reflects off of the city like buildings and streets if it changes the frequency in a certain manner they can tell if the the buildings have been damaged or the roads have been damaged and so you can also you can on the fly build a a gis map showing concentrations of damage you won't know specific buildings but you'll know the neighborhoods or the blocks at least and so that's something that at least works in theory from their testing but um hopefully maybe that that could be one of the tools that we use in uh response
0: powerful hey Forrest. if someone wanted to have your job and do what you do what sort of experiences or education would you encourage them to have
1: that's a that's a tough question because i never actually intended getting into this role i studied structural engineering and originally i did i was very curious about earthquakes even as a kid um, growing up in the bay area but i studied uh, i studied structural engineering because i originally wanted to be an architect but I wanted to do the more science side, so I did that and how earthquakes react to buildings. So, but what happened is I, I kind of got bored with doing just design of buildings. I wanted to deal with the disasters itself. And um, the best way to get into that field is, is by building your experiences. And what I did is I volunteered did pro bono work for a uh, NGO dealing with designs of earthquake resistant houses. And that's what was actually happening in Banda Aceh after the 2004 earthquake and tsunami. So doing that volunteer time, kind of build some experiences. And then the, the lady that founded the uh, NGO offered me a job. Now the job obviously was gonna pay peanuts. So, but you have to be willing to take a uh, pay cut and do something that you really enjoy. So I quit my job in San Francisco, moved out to Banda Aceh, and um, I was I was probably like I think I was thirty. But I moved out to Banda Aceh, worked for a third of your salary, and and just and and just get involved into your work. And you make a huge network connection because there are a, there's a huge need for technical background people dealing with international uh, recovery. There is a lot of people that. Wandaoche was a huge hub of expats living there, dealing with the recovery. And a lot of them had, they all had their hearts in the right spot, but a lot of them didn't have that engineering, more specifically structural engineering and construction background. So there's a lot of rebuilding and you end up networking a lot just by being on the field. And so after that job, it basically led to the next job. USAID recruited me to go out to Afghanistan to do a seismic assessment there. And then it just, and then, and then it was New Zealand and and it was just one after another and you just start building it. And so after doing that for about 13 years, um, decided, uh, to come back to California and then they wanted that, they wanted that experience at FEMA because there hasn't been a major earthquake in, in, in the U S and probably since the Northridge earthquake and was that 94, I think. And so that was the last significant earthquake and, and that earthquake wasn't even that devastating. It did collapse on freeways. But so there's, there's very little opportunities to get earthquake response experiences, at least in the US. So they needed that. Um, they need someone who had that around the world. And then and, and the good thing was having that technical background and having experiences both in developing worlds and, 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 and the uh, developed world like New Zealand um, also benefits a lot, especially if we were wanting to come back home.
0: Forest, we really want to thank you for your time, giving us your wisdom and your experiences and giving some career advice as well for those who may wish to pursue the similar path as you. So thank you so much for your time. and wish you all the best.
1: Great. It was great being here. Thank you.